Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Peter Maberduke, Director of Public Citizens Global Access to Medicines Program, who talks about the urgent need to quickly expand the world's vaccine supply in order to end the global coronavirus pandemic. Sakawa Snowbiz, founder of the Great Plains Action Society, who examines the genocidal history of Indian schools in both the U.S. and Canada. And Jamima Pierre, Associate Professor of African American Studies at the University of California, who reflects on the abuse of Haitian refugees on the U.S. southern border and the root causes of migration. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. In a dramatic announcement to the United Nations General Assembly, China's President Xi Jinping pledged to stop financing overseas coal-fired power plants, which produce emissions that are the leading cause of climate change. The policy would cut off funding for coal power plants in Asia, including Vietnam, Indonesia, Pakistan, and Turkey. Yet, according to The Guardian newspaper, the announcement doesn't impact the construction of new coal plants inside China, which plans to put 24 new coal plants online in 2021. China, along with Japan and South Korea, have been the source for 95% of the foreign financing to construct new coal power plants. But Japan and South Korea recently announced they were pulling out of coal projects. Beijing currently sees taking action on global climate change as in its national and technological self-interest that will also boost its international image. There is a big push at the upcoming UN Climate Conference in Glasgow to win a pledge of no new coal plants. Yet, Wall Street is still ready and willing to fund coal power via Vanguard Funds, BlackRock, and Barclays. Since the Paris Climate Accord was signed in 2015, three-quarters of the world's planned coal plants have been scrapped, and 44 nations no longer have plans to build coal-fired power plants. The Biden administration is accusing meat processors of profiteering during the pandemic, with rising meat and poultry prices accounting for half the rate of inflation on basic food items. Meanwhile, major meat packers spent $2.1 million on lobbying thus far in 2021 after spending $4 million on lobbying last year. Four corporations now control a majority of the market for beef, chicken, and pork bought by American consumers. In an early September post on the White House blog, Brian Deese, director of the National Economic Council, blamed the increased concentration in the meat processing industry for rising prices. Market concentration among meat processors has more than doubled since the late 1970s. Meanwhile, food processors spent record amounts paying out dividends to shareholders and buying back stock. Meatpacking giant JBS, for example, boosted stock buybacks in 2021 by 75 percent. This, at the same time, the government spent record amounts to keep small businesses afloat and limit the economic damage from the pandemic, which kept consumer demand for meat and poultry from falling. The Department of Justice is leading a price-fixing investigation of poultry producers and earlier this year won a settlement of $107 million stemming from a criminal fine against chicken and pork producer Pilgrim's Pride. 
after losing the Democratic Party mayoral primary to insurgent socialist India Walton, incumbent Buffalo Mayor Byron Brown scrambled to get his name on the ballot for the November election in what became a failed effort. After the filing deadline had passed, Brown, backed by powerful developers, filed lawsuits in state and federal court to get his new Buffalo party on the ballot. Although the effort failed on appeal, the bid cost Walton, now the Democratic nominee for mayor, tens of thousands of dollars to fight off the challenge. Brown withdrew his mayoral bid, but will remain a write-in candidate for the November 2nd election. With Walton's ties to community and labor groups and a history as founder of a community land trust that builds affordable housing, she was able to beat Brown in the primary by a 1,000 votes. In early September, Brown won a favorable ruling from federal judge John Sinatra Jr., who, according to The Intercept, is deeply connected to Buffalo developers. Although Judge Sinatra's brother is a developer and longtime contributor to Brown, and his former law firm represented Brown and the city of Buffalo in legal matters, the judge refused to recuse himself from the case. Rob Galbraith of the nonprofit Public Accountability Initiative said, What this looks like is the entire political establishment closing its fist to prevent a candidate from the left from winning an election in Buffalo. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. As the world nears the two-year mark of the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, as of late September, an estimated 4.7 million people around the world have died of the virus, while more than 680,000 have lost their lives in the United States. At the recent meeting of the United Nations General Assembly in New York, leaders of impoverished developing nations decry the inequity of vaccine distribution. As of mid-September, Fewer than 4% of Africans have been fully immunized, and most of the 5.7 billion vaccine doses administered around the world have been given to residents in just 10 wealthy nations. In comparison, 52% of people in the U.S. are fully vaccinated, and 57% in the European Union. Namibia's president, Hage Gingab, labeled the crisis vaccine apartheid while Peru's newly elected president, Pedro Castillo, called for an international accord to guarantee universal access to vaccines for all people on the planet. At a COVID summit meeting on September 22nd, President Biden announced that the U.S. will purchase an additional 500 million doses of Pfizer's vaccine to donate overseas and $370 million to administer the shots. But critics say while these additional doses are welcome, it won't be nearly enough to address the critical vaccine shortfall in the developing world. Your reporter spoke with Peter Maybarduk, Director of Public Citizen's Global Access to Medicines program, who talks about the urgent need to quickly expand the world's vaccine supply in order to end the global coronavirus pandemic. So this was a summit convened by the White House uh, contemporaneous with the United Nations General Assembly. This summit deserved to be a debate of historic 
dimensions it deserve to be a moment where developing countries were able to take wealthy countries to task for hoarding uh, vaccines, hoarding the doses, and hoarding the knowledge to make vaccines and making it far more difficult for the for the world to to scale up access and and that's not what transpired it was much more staged performance than that um however it is very important that we get every last dose that we can and if we look at it from a perspective of the white house was not about to transform its politics politics of the nation or the world to deliver a more aggressive response to COVID. If, if our ambitions are less than that, then we can see that there are many people and many agencies working hard to accelerate the dose delivery timetables. And so that's, that's significant. Uh, however, it is the case, in our opinion, that the U.S. government has tools left unused on the table that the U.S. government could have from the beginning and certainly could now retrofit manufacturing facilities at sites around the world with the best vaccine technology to make billions of doses in a matter of some months, certainly less than a year. Uh, Our own estimate is that 55 production lines and 14 manufacturing sites could be stood up in less than six months and churning out doses at scale to reach 8 billion doses of the best possible vaccines in a year's time. And You know, the NIH Moderna vaccine, for example, seems to be emerging as the best of the vaccines, and it's a vaccine that was paid for almost entirely with public money. You and I paid for the development of the NIH Moderna vaccine um, from its earliest days to the present, and and that should be made available to humanity. Biden administration has the power to do that, has the power to set up the facilities, uh, offer the financial capital offer the technical expertise and exercise the political leadership to help coordinate such uh, a project. If the United States moved first, certainly many other countries would do it in a cooperative, multilateral fashion. And the U.S. government also has the power to sit down with Moderna and encourage Moderna to share its technology or alternately simply order the sharing of that technology under the Defense Production Act and, and other authorities. That's the sort of transformative response that is needed to end the pandemic as quickly as possible and end the, this preventable suffering and death. And that's the sort of thing that the Biden administration has been uh, unwilling to do. What's at stake in your view if undervaccinated nations don't get access to vaccines soon? Of course, we've heard about more dangerous variants that will impact not just those nations, but the entire world. It really isn't a matter, as I've been understanding, of altruism about the health and welfare of people around the world. It's it's really in our own self-interest and self-preservation and make sure as many people across the globe get vaccinated as soon as possible. That's right, because there'll be more trans- transmission and potentially more variants, which we cannot predict. We are in for a longer pandemic if we don't do everything we can to get those first shots to everyone who uh, needs them. So it's absolutely in our self-interest at home to to mitigate and also to mitigate economic damage because it's a global economy. It's connected and, and all the world is suffering for, for the ongoing um, harm that the pandemic is causing. So. It's an absolute priority for everyone, but it does require a different level of ambition and a bit of imagination and leadership, not just doing the next thing, the next step, but thinking of along the lines of a transformational response that meets the scale of the crisis. And 
in that regard, uh, we are still waiting. We need the Senate Health Committee, Chairman Patty Murray, uh, the Senate Health Committee to support uh, billions of dollars for global vaccine manufacturing. The House is advancing it. It comes to the Senate and the White House. Um, the White House position also will matter. But there's a global vaccination caucus now that has said, here are billions of dollars. They started with two. We need to get to $5 billion, um, to boost global vaccine manufacturing. And it's there shortly before the Senate. Uh, the Senate Health Committee will decide. So you can call your member, call your senator, and get that support for that funding. That was Peter Maberduke, Director of Public Citizens Global Access to Medicines Program. For more analysis and commentary on the crisis in global vaccine inequity, visit our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Earlier this year, hundreds of human remains, mostly of children, were found on the grounds of Indian schools in both Canada and the U.S. So-called residential Indian schools forcibly removed 150,000 indigenous children from their families in Canada. In the U.S., hundreds of thousands of children were sent to these schools between 1869 and the 1960s. U.S. General Richard Henry Pratt, founder of the influential Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, infamously declared in 1892, quote, All the Indian there is in the race should be dead. Kill the Indian in him and save the man. The children were badly mistreated forbidden to speak their own languages, physically and sexually abused, and often did not have enough to eat. Some never returned home. The discovery of these remains confirms indigenous families' worst fears about what happened to their loved ones. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Sakawa Snobis, founder of the Great Plains Action Society based in Iowa. Here she talks about the history of Indian schools in both Canada and the U.S., what steps both countries have taken or not to deal with the fallout from what she describes as acts of genocide against the indigenous peoples of North America. I'm Plains Cree Salto of the George Gordon First Nation, um, and I uh, grew up uh, in Winnipeg and uh, spent time at my reserve in Saskatchewan, and I've been living in Iowa City for 15 years, so I feel like, yeah, I do have experiences on both sides of, of the border. Basically, uh, what's happened here uh, in the U.S. and in Canada uh, is an attempt to uh, assimilate uh, uh, people to, uh, you know, uh, the British imperialist uh, ideology um, of what civilization is, and then also to annihilate uh, any Indigenous culture that would get in the way of that uh, process of assimilation. Can you describe what these schools were like or who went there? So uh, these schools were called like boarding schools in the U.S. and residential schools in Canada. Essentially, they weren't schools. Uh, I actually call them internment camps. Um, they really were places of uh, great violence um, and, and the uh, perpetuation of genocide of Indigenous people. Really, the, the settler invaders that uh, came to these lands uh, really had no intent of truly wanting uh, to provide, uh, you know, Indigenous people with a, a different way forward, which in itself is extremely problematic. Uh, I think that the, the real agenda, um, as we all know, uh, based upon the millions and millions of people that were, were genocided, is the want to exterminate 
exterminate us. Like the process of colonization uh, is to, to take land uh, and the resources of that land and in the process mitigate the local population with whatever means is necessary. And so uh, that was really uh, the real goal of, of these schools. And they did uh, horrific things to children that um, truly, I don't even think that uh, modern day horror movies could uh, even begin to uh, explain. So even though it might be hard to hear, can you talk about some of the things that were done to these children? Absolutely. These uh, religious uh, entities uh, allowed for um, sick people to perpetuate sexual abuse, you know, uh, physical abuse, uh, mental abuse, uh, all very torturous things. And then when they wanted to hide something, they just, just murdered these children. Sakawis Nobis, what has been the response in Canada and the U.S. to the discovery of hundreds of human remains, mostly children, found at these institutions? Uh, in Canada, for instance, um, they did put forward a Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, to deal with these things. They allowed for testimony. They uh, allowed for, you know, all sorts of cultural activities. You know, they, they put a lot of money into therapy education, um, all these aspects of what like, you know, reconciliation would look like. Uh, and they, they told the truth. So they said about what happened, you know, they tried to take accountability or they looked like they were taking accountability for like what they did. The one thing that, you know, the commission uh, or that the indigenous people were asking for was like for them to sonar the grounds and to find the bodies. Um, and they refused to do that. They said it was too expensive at the time. And so now, you know, it is coming to light because, you know, such evil never really goes away and it always comes back in some way. Here we are, we're here now and people are being re-traumatized. It's, it's a very difficult time in all of our communities because of it. And um, the, the government uh, and the, uh, the Christian, uh, the Christianity are to blame. Do you know any more about the U.S. response? I think there's about 350 schools in over 350 schools in the U.S. And like none of them are being searched by the by the government. There is no there's no truth and reconciliation plan here. There's never been any type of attempt by the U.S. government to to do something even close to what Canada had done. And it's only because I think of the recent blow up in Canada that the, the U.S. government felt a need to respond and so because we do have uh, Indigenous uh, Secretary of the Interior now, Deb Haaland, um, I think that's really the one thing that has brought us to move towards that. So recently she announced that she will implement uh, a Truth and Healing Commission. That was Sakawa Snobiz, founder of the Great Plains Action Society. Learn more about the genocidal history of Indian schools in both the U.S. and Canada by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Horrific images of U.S. Border Patrol agents on horseback 
flogging Haitian refugees with her leather reins near Del Rio, Texas, on the southern border, was yet another chapter in America's long history of brutalizing refugees, and specifically the racist abuse of black asylum seekers from Haiti. As many as 15,000 refugees from Haiti and other nations that camped out under a bridge in Del Rio were removed from the area with many deported. There was widespread agreement that those border agents who carried out these sadistic acts of cruelty must be held accountable. But more disturbing is the Biden administration's continued use of Title 42, first invoked by President Trump, to expel migrant families with children away from the U.S., to prevent the spread of COVID-19. On September 16th, U.S. District Court Judge Emmett Sullivan ruled that Title 42 doesn't authorize the government to expel migrants and doesn't permit denying them the opportunity to seek asylum in the U.S. While the judge's order will go into effect at the end of September, the administration is appealing that decision. Joe Biden campaigned for office, promising a more humane immigration system. But immigrant rights advocates say he's continued the very same cruel and inhumane policies as under Trump. Your reporter spoke with Jamima Pierre, associate professor of African-American studies at the University of California, Los Angeles, who examines the current plight of Haitian refugees on the U.S. southern border and the root causes of migration. For us at the Black Alliance for Peace, it's the spectacle of these uh, of Haitians and, and other black migrants, uh, I have to say, um, being brutalized is really what caught people's attention. What hasn't caught people's attention and what hasn't been reported has been the backlog of immigrants and the, uh, and the thousands and thousands of immigrants stuck both at the Del Rio border, but also in Tapachula, which is the, the southern Mexican border with Guatemala, and also in Tijuana, Mexico, um, as a direct result of U.S. policy, immigration policy, um, against people coming to claim asylum. So the, the story about Del Rio is really um, an important one to think about and to really tell you what's going on. Apparently, they're saying 30,000 migrants have been sitting under that bridge since the, the second week of August. So it's fascinating that it's only last week that we heard about them, and we only hear about the Haitians, because the reality is they're Cubans, they're Ghanaians, they're Cameroonians. In addition to the South American migrants, they're Colombians. There are all kinds of different migrants there. And, and, and so for me, it's, it's really interesting to see how this is being played out, how it's being focused solely on the Haitians, even though that's clear and important. But it, it's focusing on the Haitians, as far as I'm concerned, exceptionalizing the Haitian aspect of the migration issue and leaves out what the U.S. is doing to other migrants and its policies in general. The issue of racism in U.S. refugee policy and immigration policy is huge. And I wondered if you would discuss that with particular attention to the history of racial discrimination uh, against Haitian refugees. And we can go back to the 80s and 90s when Haitian refugees who've been fleeing violence and instability in Haiti, much of it resulting from U.S. intervention. But we had tens of thousands of Haitian refugees uh, deported to the Guantanamo Naval Base before it was a prison for accused terrorists after 9-11. But tell us a bit about the consistent history of discrimination against Haitian refugees, if you would. The Guantanamo, and people, a lot of people might not know that you know, the first place where they held prisoners 
the first group of prisoners held there were people, asylum seekers. And I have to stop and say, for example, it's everyone's right to go up to any country. There's nothing illegal about claiming asylum. And people have to remember this because you and I have the right to leave if you feel persecuted, to go to another country. It's our legal right, international law, as well as U.S. law, to ask for asylum. What's happening is that these people are being denied the opportunity to ask for asylum. And for Haitians in particular, it is there is this long history. There's Guantanamo Bay, where um, this is early 90s, where the U.S. was behind the coup d'etat that um, removed the first democratically elected president of the country in, in all its history. And then and and really um, terrorized the, the the coup plotters terrorized uh, the supporters of that administration, killing thousands of them, and people ran away. But you know, even before that, you have Ronald Reagan. It was Ronald Reagan who actually set the stage for the conditions that we see today at the border, because in 1980s his administration led a crusade against Haitian asylum seekers, um, turning back that who were running from a dictatorship that the U.S. supported turning about thousands and thousands of, 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 of asylum seekers and imprisoning them in the Chrome Detention Center in Miami-Dade, Florida. I don't know if people remember the Chrome Detention Center. And it was in a mass imprisonment. And it looked like even Giuliani back in the, back in the time, who was a deputy um, attorney general then, basically said these detention centers could create the appearance of concentration camps filled with black people. So this goes back a very long time to the 80s. It goes back to U.S. policy against Haitian migrants and, and black migrants in particular, but also other migrants. And so Title 42 is fascinating in the sense that the CDC basically labeled Haiti as a high risk for COVID. <laughs> Considering the U.S. is the place that has the most number of COVID, they redefine Haiti as a place where COVID is rampant when we know that's actually not true. Right. So then they can say, well, Title 42, we cannot bring them in, even though most of these migrants have not been in Haiti for three, four five years. We joke. I live in California. We joke. Actually, the largest undocumented population um, that we never hear about are Canadian <laughs> migrants who are living here uh, without fear of being sent back to Canada. And so this history is, is horrendous. It's terrible. And the images that we see are only the tip of the iceberg because right now these migrants have been disappeared. We don't know. They're only if between two and 4,000 have been deported over the past five days. But there were, you know, 30,000 at the border. Before that, there's 120,000 um, in Tapachulas. And so we have to ask why, you know, and that's the first question we have. Why are there all these migrants all of a sudden at these borders? What's going on? That was Jamima Pierre, Associate Professor of African-American Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles, and coordinator of the Black Alliance for Peace Haiti and the Americas Committee. Find a link to her recent article titled Borders, Blackness, and Empire and related commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. 
There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WUML in Lowell, Massachusetts, KTWH in Two Harbors, Minnesota, KSER in Everett, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. We'll be right back.